All right, all right. All right. Hey, what's up, everyone? Thanks for the sub, Duffy. Much appreciated. All right, guys. So today, interesting. Uh, like it's going to be probably an interesting topic about small versus uh, larger scale um, PvP. And uh, that comes from uh, Kai Noon, uh, who's now in, uh, who he used to be in Goonswarm and running a pretty successful <coughs> SIG actually in Goons um, called Liberty Squad, uh, which was like a major um, content generator for Goons in US time zone. And Kainun decided to leave Goons and uh, I'm not sure if you started this, uh, your new group or like if you just got involved and stuff, but you can talk about that in a sec. And Murray has like a similar path. I'm not sure if you guys talk to each other and if you're friends or if you were friends before and stuff, but Murray was like pretty much the, a similar situation, but his corp left uh, Tapi, right? Or Test, sorry. I don't want to, I don't want to get anyone triggered here. <laughs> Billy will come for you later. That's all right. That's all right. But um, it's a similar path, I believe. And uh, I'm not sure if you guys uh, knew each other uh, before that. Oh, Billy is already there. <laughs> What's up, Billy? Um, but yeah, and then Moray is running for CSM at the moment, right? So um, I think elections going on. Is it Tuesday? It's next week, sometime. Yeah, I think the first. I'm not entirely sure, but it's going to be in the next couple of days. The CSM elections start. And we have a lot of candidates this year, like 40. And uh, I think like at least half of them are a little bit uh, in over their heads. But uh, I decided uh, to have like some FC candidates on that are maybe not as as well known as like other FCs I had on before because it's small scale focused. Right? You guys are focusing on like smaller scale uh, stuff now. And... Uh, so basically you're not leading full fleets of people you're not like uh cult leaders or like <laughs> you know what i mean like with like massive uh fleets behind you or massive amounts of people that would also then vote for you right so like for you it's going to be a little bit harder to to get on right it's good old-fashioned campaigning gotta wander around the discords talking to people yeah, there's a lot of stuff of that stuff happening in the background too. Um but yeah. Um so have you guys like what's the connection between you guys actually? So are your like so Kainun is from Freight Train Diplomacy and Murray is from Federated Alliance of Mafias. And I believe you have to correct me in a sec if I'm wrong. I believe you guys have like a little bit of a coalition going on. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, tell me um, about that. So, so we would have met initially through uh, friends in Rote Capel. So we didn't actually really interact with each other at all until we moved in next to each other. And even then, most of the time we were fighting each other. Um, stop by with smaller fleets and kind of give each other some content. We didn't end up working together as much until. 
Uh, There were some other threats that were hitting, that had been mostly hitting us as opposed to Dogfort, but when people are hitting one or two of us and we just don't have the numbers ourselves, we'll team up to try and even the odds a little bit. And yeah, more or less what it was, was um, uh, a new group basically came into the area and just started hitting Fam a whole bunch. And very early on, they more or less just had a very couple of, a very choice couple of words to throw our way. And since Fam more or less invited us for help, it was more or less a case of, okay, well, those guys wanted to be dicks. You guys want us to shoot them. All right, let's go fucking shoot them. Why not? Uh, so wait, uh, was that before you guys were in um, in Goons and Test, or was that after? No, that was a very recent development after right. we both created our respective alliances. So, but like, so did you guys know each other before um, you started working nope. to, together now with the smaller groups? So you just both have the same kind of path, and then said like, oh yeah, that kind of works out, and it's just like coincidence? More or less, yeah. Um, so, I mean, this whole kind of path is something that's... Go ahead. Go ahead. Dang it. Uh, so, brand new bros followed, a, at least I think, a pretty similar path to what... So, Terrifying League of Dogforts, the main corp in uh, Freight Train Diplomacy, they followed a pretty similar path. I had actually left Test about nine months before then, and I had went and gone and joined Unspoken. Uh, out when they, back when they were out trying to take space and cash before they moved to tribute. Um, and so I was with them doing kind of the small fleet stuff. That was where I really got into the actually doing the whole show in terms of FCing. And then once I knew Brand New Bros, which was where I had started out, uh, were going to do it on their own, I figured I'd come over and help them out. Yeah, so... Like first when I talked to you, like when I, when we first talked about like you guys getting on, I I thought like there's a connection that you guys maybe like I didn't look at the dates when you guys left um, the groups and stuff like this, so I thought maybe you guys were friends before, then always kept talking to each other and then both decided like now's the time and then both left and started something new, and then but still do your own alliances, which like then. It wouldn't make sense, I guess, right? So if you if that was the case, you probably would have been in the same alliance. It would be way easier for you guys. Um, but that's why I asked, right? Um, but like, so why did you why did you decide to to you know make that move, right? Why did you decide to to downsize? You want to answer first, Mary? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, I left tests because I was bored. I, it's, there was nothing that was really, you know, a high level or challenging content that I could do with a small group of guys anywhere within 40 jumps of Esoteria. And the only real content when I left was they were still sort of fighting fraternity, which I didn't really have any interest in being up at 5am just to partake in that content. So I kind of fished about for different places that I could go and sop null, which at the time, uh, Wrecking Crew wasn't nearly as much of a thing. Um, and I didn't know about cones at all. 
So I actually took it took me a little while to figure out who was actually there in USTZ. Um, but then I settled down in Unspoken, found a bunch of uh, slightly bitter, but uh, a lot of veteran players who particularly hated uh, working with anybody else and just kind of did their own thing. Well, all veteran players are to to degree bitter, I would say, right? <laughs> like you can't avoid it. Dude, the bitterness is absolutely unavoidable. I mean, there are rare cases, but yeah. There definitely are some rare cases, but I think everyone goes through it at one point or another. I know for Dogford in general, like us leaving was more or less a very long-term plan. Um, most of us, by the time that we had left, had like all of us were already several months past the time when we had wanted to basically just head out the door. And for basically all of us, myself, Thomas, said. Uh, Synthage, like most of the people who actually left with Dog Fort, it was more or less just a unified sense of just exhaustion kind of with the situation within GSF. It was lack of risk. It was a perception of stagnation on part of GSF. It was the interpersonal drama nonsense that we were constantly having to deal with. And even in, in some senses, a degree of just not being wanted overall, just several of the larger personalities within Dog Fort just didn't feel welcome anymore. And so we more or less decided to strike out, form our own thing, and more or less just reintroduce some of the risk of the game to ourselves and actually kind of play Eve with the actual central feeling of everything is at risk if you try to build something on your own. Yeah. I mean, I, t I totally get that part. But then it, then also, it's a lot of work, right? Like when you, when you go out and, you know, you leave that, uh, you know, that structure of a big alliance, and then you build something on your own. So, like, what are the challenges there? Like, when you first, you know, wanna wanna uh, wait? Did you start some? Uh, you, you, Thomas, Leah, who else left? There was a group of you guys, right? Did you start? Yeah, it was. It was basically all of Dogfort and all the FCs and leadership types that were within Dogfort. Um, that were also within the Alliance infrastructure. So it was like myself, it was Thomas, it was at Starshine, who was a coordinator in GSF, it was in Pitch, who was an FC in GSF. Um, several other people as well came, but they were more smaller levels or like more auxiliary roles and stuff like that. And we all basically said just, we want to build our own thing and we want to kind of strike out on our own and do and more or less just have fun on our own. So you guys decided to do your own thing, like build it up from nothing while Murray you joined a uh, already uh, established group to a degree, right? But in both yeah. cases, it's always like, um, it's way more work, right? Per per pilot in the Alliance, like on average, it's way more work. Like on goons, you can, sp you can split that, or on, in test two, obviously, spread all that workload around on like so many people, right? But in smaller groups, like it's all on like a, a few um, key, you know, people in the alliance, right? So what we're yeah, it's definitely an astronomical jump in workload and in both the leadership perspective as well as just at the line member level. Because when you only have the that smaller pool of individuals to draw from. Every single fleet that you do is far more reliant on the actual individual, both showing up as well as their performance within those fleets themselves. And you also have to 
factor in like the economic situations as well as those individual pilots are typically going to be funding their own ships, their own doctrines and stuff like that, as opposed to in the case of major blocks, they basically just have a night endless supply of money to draw from just by virtue of just being so large. And so what other challenges, like if you like, like, let's say I'm deciding to leave in it and then I want to do my own thing, like, what would you tell me? Like, give me, give me some tips. Like, what would I do? Like, what, what do I look for? Like, what mistakes did you do? Maybe, right? Like, what's the, what's the hardest part about starting up that new group? Is it the constant content? Is it getting new people? Or is it, uh, is it the fucking IT side of things? Because goons are super organized. And if you leave goons, like, and you're used to this, and suddenly you don't have anything, that might just be the difference, right? So what was it for you guys? For me, it really depends on the group. Um, in Unspoken, it was a very tight-knit group of kind of veteran players, right? So recruiting was one of the most difficult like it would go like two months and we'd get like one new guy and we'd be like yes recruiting is going great we're killing it but every single person that we got was another two subcap pilots they had a dread alt they knew how to do this that and the other so it was very much a kind of like once we had enough people or if there were enough people around we could do a ton of things in brand new bros and fam we're very much a new bro focused kind of alliance. So we recruit people, no problem. But a lot of these players are super new. So it's figuring out how to integrate people with low SP, uh, very limited kind of knowledge of how the game works and getting them into fleets, into small gangs, into ISK making in ways that are both you know useful to them and where they feel like they're making an impact. Yeah, and uh, how was it for you guys, uh, Kainan? So for us, I mean, multiple people within our alliance that have already more or less done the run an alliance type of thing. I know it's the Sky Marshal Lawn back before World War B went, so I'm already kind of familiar with the whole military organizational side of things. Um, we have people like Mapache and Ash Crawl. Ash does IT just as a matter of course within his personal life so he was able to basically begin setting that kind of stuff up for us and then Pache is affectionately referred to as basically friends with everyone he has a never-ending stream of contacts and friends within other alliances and groups and stuff like that um as far as things to focus on and whatnot i would say the, the number one thing is more or less just have a core group of guys that you can know can cover each of the individual things like scouting like industry uh mining and organizing those kind of PVE-oriented activities, have someone who can more or less take on the military side of things, have someone who can handle the leadership, general infrastructure, and stuff like that as well. Just make sure that each of those roles are kind of covered. And then go into it with a singular goal, a singular driving vision. And that's typically how to kind of make that initial start. You know what? I think you, it used to be just one guy, right? Back in the day, it was just one guy doing like all of these things. And I think IT, it became more and more of a of an important thing over the years. I think Goons actually uh, displayed the power of that uh, the most over the years. That The more you're organized, the bigger, 
the group can be, right? Really, because that's where that's where usually um, groups are maxed out. If it's getting too big and it's getting unorganized, then you know it's chaos and everyone's running around and, and doesn't know what to do and all that stuff. So you have to like figure out how to organize these people. And I think that's why goons and now test and horde obviously are so big or are even able to be that big. I think back in the day, you probably couldn't be that big, you know, simply because of the organizational part. But the IT department's caught up. Maybe. But do you guys plan on even being, becoming like big players or do you do you feel like you're in a good spot and you just want to stay the same size i know that in freight training we are still perfectly open to growth and whatnot i mean most of our fcs are people who came from blocks and who came from that scale of warfare that's the type of thing that we love that's the type of thing that we enjoy and we basically just wanted to start our own thing so we could more or less is have the freedom to create that content as we desired so i know for us we're perfectly happy to keep on growing and whatnot and more or less is seeing where we can go and kind of where we can end up as it were yeah i for me um i much prefer the small scale fighting i the just kind of the way those fights go for me and the kind of little things that go into them i much prefer that to anything bigger um so if i'm stuck having to fc 150 man fleets every day i'm probably gonna go somewhere else it would slowly and assuredly kill your soul murray yeah it's just uh see you later <laughs> what's like uh do you have some 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 cool fights recently like small scale I, the scale for me personally i like all the like it doesn't matter what scale a fight is right um but like, did you guys have like some some cool fights recently that people might not know about? You know, no matter what size. A lot of our big fights recently have been, at least in my mind, they get up kind of somewhat to mid scale, where we're talking 70, 80, 90 subcap pilots on each side, and maybe fifty to sixty dreads on each side at kind of yeah. the upper limit. That's a good size. Yeah, that's that's just been a lot of, you know, we're there, Dogport's there, and then the other side's bringing in some extra people, so we need to ask around for numbers just to kind of match them. And uh, it scales up from there. What ob what objective um, are uh, Larry guys of, fighting for usually? It's been a lot of smaller structures, Astrohooses, Athenors. Uh, that's our enemy stages. Or the people we've been fighting the most stage out of an Astra who's so that's the biggest target we can hit. Um, so that's like that's something that always comes up is like content uh, drivers and stuff, right? So do you think Astrohoses and so on uh, should have two or three timers? Technically, you have to ref them three times. Do you think like that's good, or should it just be two, for example? And what about um, Athanos? and so on right should they maybe only have one timer or what do you think or what about damage cap like that kind of stuff what's your take on that kind of stuff on from a from a small scale perspective because i don't know right i mean I so one of the things to me that 
is kind of you see a lot more in small groups because just by nature of being small they're almost exclusively single time zone groups right so you think about pretty much anybody in Vale or tribute it's not like goons where it's like we've got a lot of ustc and a lot of eutc and AUTC now too because they recruited half a GOTG. But like we are in one time zone. And so either we can defend something or hit something in that time zone usually, or we can't. Because if we ping in at 1800, there are three people who are around. So one of the big things, or I guess the two things that come from that, one is that if you want cross time zone fights, you have to make it so you can actually hit a structure on a weekend. Because right now, either the armor or the hull timer on a full power structure is going to land on a weekday. And so at that point, there's no time where I could even say, hey, like we all have Sunday afternoon, we can hit their structure and kill it. Because the best I can do is put it into hull and then it comes out on a Wednesday and we have nobody and it doesn't matter. So like, even if we really wanted to go fight toilet paper or like any of our neighbors that are EUTZ or RUTZ, they couldn't kill any of our structures and we couldn't kill any of theirs. So at that point, it's like, even if I hated them, which I don't, but like, even if I did, there's no way for me to do anything about it. So nothing ever happens. Yeah. Um, and like when I was an unspoken, we got into a grudge match with trigger happy. And even though Trigger Happy was three times our size, four times our size, it didn't matter because in USTZ, they had like 10 people. So they chipped away at one or two of our structures just by sheer rep number of timers. But like, I don't think they were having fun for the most part until Pittsburgh got a few more dudes and we actually had some fights. But like for a while, it was really boring. Yeah. So I think... Time zone tanking is an issue for all um, sized groups, right? even for larger groups like in it, for example. We have all time zone, like we have people in every time zone, but uh, obviously even even we don't have necessarily the numbers to contest uh, like anyone in any time zone, right? So it's like a real problem. So what do you think, like since you're running for CSM, is that one of the things you... Um, uh, you focus on or you want to you know i don't want to say focus on right i don't i don't agree with the with the whole like oh what's your idea I, it's not how the csm works but um anyway like is that one of the things you want to bring to the attention of ccp uh, maybe the time zone tanking that there has to be done more about it and if so what what would be your vote uh, your um your suggestion how to fix it i mean so you're right insofar as like time zone tanking is never going to go away right and that's for the better like i don't i'm not going to begrudge a chinese alliance from setting their timers to 1100 that's just when they're at home and so that makes sense the key is like what i said so making it so that when there is an availability for groups to fight cross time zone like on weekends we can actually force those fights to be at those times and actually try and take them. Because right now that's impossible. The other thing is across a lot of the smaller groups that I know, people really hated the change from a four hour window 
to a six-hour window for structures. Because with the way that kind of, even if you have people spread out over a couple of adjacent time zones, the way a six-hour window can roll, you can end up where some of your, for example, in the United States, if it's an early roll on a timer, some of your West Coast guys are still at work. And if it's a late roll, your East Coast guys, it's 1.30 in the morning. So at that point, even if, if you're in a single time zone and you're trying to rally kind of your maximum number of people to fight over your own stuff, bad structure rolls can make it so that you're only showing up at half strength. Which, you know, it's it's super frustrating to deal with because you want to be there, you want to take that fight, you want to have your full strength and say, let's go. But you can't because the timers just roll in a way that's awkward for one end of your time zone. And it's not like 2300 as opposed to like zeros is that much better for EUTZ. Like they don't really want to take a fight at 1 a.m. in the morning versus us fighting them at kind of an earlier time for us. So it doesn't really instigate cross time zone conflict, but it makes life harder for groups that are in single time zones unnecessarily. Yeah, I, first of all, I agree. But uh, so what would, like, I do have an idea how to maybe get them, but what would you say, uh, say is like one way to, I think like you can't get rid of it, like you said, you can't get rid of it entirely. But what would be one way to um, to get closer to like more overlapping time zones and stuff, like to maybe get more timers on the weekend? Well, so you can either switch the way it works right now. So right now it's shield, 24 hours, armor, two and a half days, at least for nullsec, hull. Make it so it's shield, two and a half days, armor, and then hull. So that I, way I can ref yeah. it at some point during the week. And then the timer is Saturday, Sunday. And if I really want to kill that structure, we can sit down on the af in the afternoon and kill that structure. And that's fine. Like that's very workable. So you know what was my suggestion before is you ref it and then you get a strong timer, right? So the first timer, the, the armor timer is a strong timer. And then the, la the last timer is a normal one, right? So that would be one way I feel like, I mean, the whole strong dynamic of timers was great, I think, right? For those who are not aware, like there was a, like, there, there was a whole lot of possibilities or ways of approaching it with strand which means if alliance a is in u.s time so let's say you guys have prime time uh 0100 and we have prime time at 1800 you guys expect us to engage at our prime time right so you would time it so that if it's getting reft in euro time zone it ends up in your u.s time zone then we can go and say okay we can predict it now. We could do the first ref, the first ref already in US time zone, because that's not what you expect, because that's your time zone. And then end up with a better timer as a result. But the first ref is in your time zone. Means you could, if you're good and fast, just you know, spot us forming, counter form, and then actually engage us already on the first ref, which is definitely not happening at the moment, right? So already the first ref. 
there's already content lost and it's boring as like it's it hurts nfc to be quite honest nfc that's uh taking out a fleet to just ref stuff uh he's not having fun he's not like he doesn't love having people grind shit down right so it's like you know why not already give the possibility for content on the first ref right that would be i believe um the the best uh middle ground with that one strong timer in between and then the last timer is in the defender's prime time but you can predict it so like you said if you then say after the first timer it's one day and i think you're on on point there if that last timer is just one day they have one day to evacuate stuff and all that uh, good stuff you know and that should be enough to be quite honest because you had a warning time of the other timers too um and then you can have both timers on the weekend so yeah i definitely agree but yeah, I think yeah, the time will be good middle ground. What do you guys think? At that point, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of flexibility as far as the timer goes, and there's also counterplay for the defenders it, with a system like because one of the one of the nice things about the old the uh, strong timers of the of the old is basically when someone is actually going out and hitting your structure, if you're able to just rush over to that tower in time and more or less swap out the strong stacks, you can actually retime it before. They actually finish roughing it and so in doing so it rewards those smaller more organized groups that don't quite have just like massive spanning infrastructures in a lot of cases and it directly rewards like thorough activity and living within your space and just being johnny on the spot yeah so um like if ccp would ask you uh, how would you um, uh, do it? Would you just say, like the first thing? I think that's the easiest change, right? To say the last time is just one day. Would like so, like who disagrees with that? I wonder, right? Like why did they pick um, the first time to be a day or like two days? I believe, right? I forgot actually. I'm not grinding a lot of structures. <laughs> uh, so what's the reasoning behind that? You think, and then. Uh, what would you say is the the perfect way? Is it is it just that one day? Is that all we need? Maybe is that going to change a, a lot for you guys already? For for especially for smaller guys, but just one um, time zone. Well, I don't think there's ever going to be a perfect or magic bullet solution that kind of addresses everything in a really good way. Um, I would say that having those relatively quick turnaround timers, such that you can actually like set up like a weekend series of bashes would definitely be a good spark a good start just because of the flexibility that is always found on weekends as far as being able to flex into different time zones but as far as just having like a really perfect solution i don't think it's necessarily perfect yeah um so with your small groups now right so we're talking about citadels and stuff like this like are you actually already like uh taking space like do you guys have a lot of like real strategic targets or are these citadels actually just like fight generators for you guys like like how do you see them like are you actually trying to grow um into space like into nullsec um or like are you just um you know trying to generate fights with the with the stuff you've got 
Like, is it like, the, the 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 question is probably like, how important are those citadels to, for you guys? Are these guys refing them to just like get that timer so people have like that date for like a, a like an almost a, a an arranged fight, or is it actually people fighting each other for this stuff? You know what I mean? Like, is it is it actually strategic? Uh, I mean, at least for us, most of our fighting so far has been defensive. Um, we set up, and then we got into about a month-long fight with uh, a SIG from Test, and that was them camping us and trying to take out some of our structures. And then we had a little break, and now we have this other group that's, again, hitting our SOB and trying to take out our structures. So most of our fighting's actually been defensive. So they're hitting, you know, Athenors that we have on moons or just, you know, citadels that we use for other things in our own pocket, essentially. So that was probably not good fight kind of refs. That's bad blood kind of refs, right? Well, Is it not? A little bit. <laughs> I think it, I think it mostly some, depends uh, on your perspective. There's definitely been some... Uh, some some mean words said on both sides. Is it not yeah, but... uh, big like form ups, blue balls, or um, you know, complete like? I mean, blue balls always it goes over both sides, obviously, right? Is it actually are people actually coming out trying to present a fleet for you guys to fight there? Like, from a test perspective, I don't know. Like, I didn't follow any of that stuff. Like, are they actually uh, sending fleets that you can engage? Or are, they, or are they trying to, like, you know, outnumber you guys so much to just take those structures from you? Because there's a little bit of bla bad blood and going on. The test one was interesting, because that was their... So you talk to Siku, as his SIG. Um, mm. So it was Predators who were up there. Um, and so they did kind of their more standard stuff of the cloaky camping, trying to hot drop. Um, and then there were a few structures that got poked here and there, a couple of soft things that got reft. But a lot of it was them kind of... Harassment? I don't know if it was shaking off the rust from some of their old tactics or whatever, but trying their usual stuff. Um, and yeah, like Billy said, the test sake, their fleets are usually on the smaller side. There was one or two big fights that went down where they brought in a few extra dudes, and I think Trigger Happy uh, came in and kind of helped us out on that one because that was an EUTZ. But for the most part, it was smaller scale fights. And that was interesting because I that was my first time actually sitting down and working out how to deal with cloaky campers and figuring out the best ways to counter drop them. And so like me and Siku had a conversation near the end of it where he was like, yeah, no, like that was the first time in a long time that we've actually fought somebody who aggressively kind of went back at us in terms of trying to deal with the campers and baiting them out. Yeah, cloaky campers are tricky, right? The thing is, I think for bigger groups, like let's say in it, like we're getting cloaky camp too. Uh, every now and then, I'm not sure. I think we are getting cloaky camp right now, actually, by um, snuff. 
But the thing is always like you can't just be there twenty four seven, right? So you need to kind of be able to predict when they're around, what they're doing, and then you know, like sometimes you wait for weeks and nothing happens, and that's discouraging, right? So uh, it's not always easy to deal with that kind of stuff and just bait them. Because I'm getting convos all the time, like, hey, like there's a neutral here, like I can bait for you, right? And obviously, that there's probably a care bear who was who just wants to mine. <laughs> it's like, hey, you want to, you want me to bait for you? That's like the 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 go-to move, right? You can fucking red in my. I'm just get, st- sitting down, standby. But I think maybe smaller groups have a bit of bit of a better chance there, right? Because you guys have a little bit more. Like everyone feels a little bit more um, responsible in general. So it's not always down to the number one guy to do it. I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, in cases like that, a lot of the time, you like everyone just likes to idle on comms. Everyone likes to sit in a channel and ship us with each other, maintain standing fleets and stuff like that. And it's it's much easier to respond in that sense because it's the type of thing that everyone is just aware of as a community, as opposed to once you've grown to the size where you're like a, a multi-region spanning entity, it becomes far more difficult to have kind of those smaller, more concentrated connections with everyone and actually deal with those kinds of situations. And you know what? I'm oh, sorry, what? All right. Uh, for me, especially if it's an experienced group of players, um, that know kind of how to make ISK elsewhere if they need to, it really doesn't bother them, right? Like, I made just as much ISK doing stuff that I do when there were cloaky campers and when there weren't cloaky campers. The thing is, I need to sit there and kind of go and bait them and get them out and try and make it a little less fun for them because I'm working with a lot of players who are completely new, right? And... So their options for making money are a lot more limited. And the kind of things you need to do to counter cloaky campers require alts, require SP, require a decent amount of in-game knowledge. They don't require a lot of skill. Like, you decloak in a recon, you tackle something, you light a sino and you kill it. That's about it. But you need that SP and you need that skill. So it ends up being that there's a bunch of new players who are like, well, I'm in nullsec, but I can't use any of the space. Well, this is kind of lame. And then everybody else is like, yeah, but we do this, this, and this. And a lot of those other money-making methods are either higher SP or not really available to them yet. So that's kind of lame. Yeah. Well, um, would you guys say, do you wish more people would go out? And then do smaller scale stuff. I mean, I think pro. I mean, obviously, you do wish to do that, right? But why do you think um, people don't do that all that much? Like, why, why do you pe- uh, think people stick to their big uh, coalitions and alliances uh, at the moment? Like, what's the main reason for that? If you're a casual player, like being in a small group where you need to be active many days of the week for more time to make sure that stuff gets done or that you actually defend your stuff it's a bigger time commitment there's a lot more to it for sure there's probably a lot more time commitment but there's something to not factor out uh, factor out as well as just the inherent risk in being a smaller entity and stuff like that just 
in a massive field of blocks or in space that is predominantly controlled by blocks. Because at the end of the day, if, if one of the larger fish in the proverbial pond basically say, yeah, no, you guys need to go, they're just going to bulldoze you over. And there's, in a lot of cases, not going to be a lot that you can really do about it. And you're basically just going to get rolled. You're going to lose all your space, all your structures, everything gets asset safetyed. And your guys lose a lot of stuff in that process. And that's a lot of risk that people took to try and bank on something like that. And as the years have gone on, people are less inclined to take those kinds of risks, as well as, as Murray said, kind of put in the time efforts necessary to kind of craft and build up these new entities and whatnot. And personally, it's something that's kind of made me sad over the past several years. And one of the things that I've really felt strongly about, because new entities and new groups are the lifeblood of the and the more new small groups that are out and about and growing and thriving, it's ultimately going to lead to a healthier EV ecosystem. It's going to lead to more content, more fights and stuff like that, because the bar for effective content drivers for those groups is much lower than it is for blocks. Yeah. You know what? One thing I always, um, uh, I always feel like, and now I just lost my train of thought. What did you just say? Uh, the final bit was um, the the bar to have an effective reason to actually go and fight, or the reason to actually like go into an all out war for a I am so is much more bar than it is for. I found it again. One thing I always bring up, I always say is maybe it's not as much. Uh, uh, of a problem giving smaller groups like um, maybe it's not smaller groups missing the tools to like develop and all that stuff maybe the large groups just have too many tools I have it too easy to be that big you know what I mean maybe it should be harder for for bigger groups and what I'm talking about here is like jump bridge networks ACLs citadels having access to everything and all that stuff you know what i mean it's way easier for coalitions to build with all these tools like imagine a world where an alliance like only the owner of a citadel can actually dock in nullsec right let's say nullsec because maybe you know in low sec that might be a different rule right but let's that if we focus on nullsec maybe only the owner of the uh, the owner of the structure should be able to dock Maybe, um, you know, you shouldn't uh, be able to give away ACL access in an instant to jump bridges. Uh, like all these little things make that make the organization of big groups and then mega coalitions just so easy, right? So like, why would you then downsize? Like, it's like, there's no real reason for that. Oh, 100%. Uh, you'll find that my opinions on some of the things that null blocks have too easy are pretty similar to uh, Darius, I believe. Your, your friendly pinecone adversary. <laughs> yeah, I haven't talked to uh, to Darius about uh, that particular thing. I think, or did I? Well, I had him on. I probably did bring it up. I I, I bring it up all the time because I really think. Like it doesn't like quality of life is always like everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's a quality of life. But yeah, maybe you shouldn't have this quality of life in a, in a game. You know what I mean? Maybe it should be a little harder and stuff like this, right? 
Uh, we so, definitely, we definitely share a similar hatred of uh, the way jump bridges currently operate. Um, he want. I think he's more of a lot in the train of thought of make it so that unless you're in the alliance that owns them, you either can't use them or it's very expensive. Um, I'm fine with them just getting fatigue again, either or really at this point. Um, to me, though, I think a lot of the issues that you get both with it being possible to compress so many people into smaller areas and then not give people an incentive to take more space or prevent people from kind of spreading out and becoming more engageable targets comes down to the way that subcap ratting is currently set up and how anomaly respawns work. And like, until that very core set of the system gets changed, there's no incentive for like fam to ever take more than one constellation. There's no incentive for goons to leave Delve, or, and not necessarily for goons to leave Delve, right? But maybe a group in goons says, it's too crowded here. Well, if I went and took space up in Pureblind, I could make a whole lot more money. And so they go do that. But if you don't have these jump bridges that just let you teleport up and down four regions, then suddenly that group is kind of on its own when it comes to smaller timers. So they need to kind of sink or swim. And then their content for other small groups, and you get, you know, yep. some more interesting fights. And it would build six. And I mean, traditionally, six, like, are very important for big groups nowadays, I believe, right? Because you can have, from an FC perspective, it's always a struggle. Uh, you only have so many timers, you only have so much time in the day that someone can FC too, right? You can, like, there's only so many time slots where like someone can take out the fleet. So it's always going to be like just a few FCs. Right? Usually it's like two, maybe three main FCs and then maybe four, five, six, maybe up to 10 support FCs and stuff on a, like on a certain level, right? There's probably a lot of people that take out like super small roams. But when it comes to strategic stuff, um, that's what six are great for, right? So you can take out a sick and this guy who's like, um, spearheading the sick that's deploying let's say to pure blind um he can now get like some uh, alliance like campaign experience while they still got like for example let's take test as an example if um uh, Seto, he's not even in, in test anymore but let's say uh, Seto took out a, a sick he would get experience and then villian pro got they're still at home. They can still like manage like everything at home, and boom, they suddenly have three um, campaign leading FCs, right? Like three main FCs. So uh, six are great for that, but that would also be uh, six would also be great for like a scenario like you just described, right? Then you can suddenly have like someone like a uh, set or like one of you guys. Um, take out a sick live someone else, somewhere else on their own and then maybe maybe after a while people split up that's usually what happens right traditionally if you have those six a lot of times those six actually leave that alliance because they think like why don't we do this on our own anyway right like you've seen it a couple of times 
Liberty Squad is uh, maybe a little bit of an example. I don't know. Was it Liberty Squad's leaving goons, like, to a degree? It wasn't really Liberty who left. It was mostly Dogfort, which was functioning the leadership of Liberty. But, I mean, you definitely have a point as far as that goes. I mean, you, you've seen several times now where stuff is that stuff like that has happened within GSF in particular. You have Space Violence, who was led by Kendar, who split off and formed Trigger. You had Liberty Squad, led by myself, who split off and formed Freight Train Diplomacy. Uh, way back when you had the Australian time zone, led by Faulty of Memory Serves, who split off and formed... Um, tactical uh, Supremacy. Yeah, uh, Tactical Supremacy. Uh, even further back, you have folks like... a. Uh, Name uh, Suas, who took his corp, and for a time he, uh, if memory serves, basically spawned a group and syndicate that was successful for quite an, a uh, decent amount of time. As well. So, I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, it, it, definitely within those SIG infrastructures and stuff like that, that is very much a breeding ground for new entities and whatnot to kind of spawn because it gives a reasonably safe way for you to kind of set out those roots, as it were, that'll allow you to create another entity. Yeah, so I'll just footnote about asking a question about why SIGs are dead in GSF now, but let's not talk about that. Well, maybe, like, if you remember how we got here to that point in the discussion, it was about spreading out the embassy stuff, right? So let's say. Yeah, and... yeah what? Yeah, no, definitely. So, like, it's being able to spawn off those small groups and go elsewhere is definitely an important thing. But I am one of the kind of kind of questions that I'd ask both of you is before the implementation of the current jump gates and whatnot in the time before those kind of got spun back up, did we really see all that much in way of blocks breaking up or tons of new groups spawning up between the sovereignty changes and those coming into play? Uh, yeah, no. Probably not, right? Yeah, so I, I don't think... So, yes, we can absolutely reduce the quality of life that a lot of blocks rely on, but I don't ultimately don't think that's going to be the spawning pool to create a bunch of new entities, because I think it's more of a personal problem as far as the player base than the actual infrastructure that is... Yeah, you might be right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well... To some extent, that's why I mentioned kind of the both sides of it, right? So, and they've done some nerfs, and obviously mining is dead, but even when jump bridges had fatigue, right? You could pack a ton of people into a small area. So, there wasn't really an incentive to go start a border skirmish with somebody else outside of fun, because you didn't need that space. And even if you took it, nobody would live there because it was outside of the super cap umbrella. And they can make plenty of money underneath the umbrella. Yeah. If there's a financial incentive for me to go and take a border system and say, this is mine now because it makes me this more like this money in some way, shape, or form, then suddenly people have a reason to poke at the edges of groups that are too big. They have a reason to try and take small areas of space for themselves and kind of dead areas. And you start to see groups that can't, you know, take a hike 50 jumps anymore because jumper just have fatigue say, wow, this really sucks. I mean, one of the biggest things that I remember from 
like what I saw and what I heard about the fight between skill yourself and like the DRF was that skill yourself was very good at, they would generate some timers really far away from wherever DRF was staging. Right. And so DRF would have to form up their 250 man typhoon fleet. They'd walk the 35 jumps, eat some fatigue here and there and And skill yourself wouldn't show. Yeah. And they'd hate it. And then the next time it was 230, next time it was 210, and then suddenly they're only showing up with 120 dudes, and Skill Yourself said, hey, we can kill that. And they did. And that even breaks the morale even more, right? But if it only takes five minutes for you to get those 250 people there and back, then nobody's not going to do it the next time. It was like, oh, this was easy. Um, Like, I didn't even have time to watch half a Netflix show. And we're already back. Yeah, but I'm, at the same time, I'm not a big fan of the whole blue ball scenario, right? I'd rather have like another group like XI, or like, what was it? Yeah, the drone Russian forces, right? The DRF. Um, another group that takes, like, so they have to share that space to a degree, right? That would be the, the best scenario, like have more players. So it is just like more competition, right? That would be the actual best uh, case scenario, but that's not like, you know, that's not realistic, obviously. Well, and that goes back to that outer space being valuable, right? If it's valuable to live there, then in the case of, right, me taking some guys and poking the edge of the PanFam umbrella, we're going to get fights against the locals as long as we don't, you know, blob them to a ridiculous degree. But it allows us to if they bat phone 180 dudes to our 40, we can say, hey, no, like we're not going to take that fight. And suddenly it's not worth it to bring the 180 every time. So it's us against the locals for the most part. And that's where all the fights are happening, right? At that scale. Yeah, and we experience the same thing right now, right? For example, like uh, I think I talked about that shortly um... I think last time for like a second too, uh, Horde is deploying and they deploy to pure blind, which is like, it's not really our space. We have some citadels there so they can hit those citadels and it's the exact, exact same approach. Right. And then we would have to travel all the way up there. And by the time we travel up there, they can make the decision. Are they blue balling or are they, you know, engaging because, uh, and then obviously if they have the advantage to engage, if not, they just blue ball and they win anyway, because how oh, made you form, right? And that's a very common strategy, I would say, that is, um, you know, I, f- I feel like it's a little sad that we have a lot of that in EVE right now. And, it, you know, it has to do with the exact same thing that we talk- talked about, I think, because people don't actually want to take that space. Like Horde isn't deployed to take that space and, you know, live there or anything. It's just a harassment thing, right? Yeah, Horde doesn't want pure blind and neither do you. The only people there who have any incentive to commit are French Connection or Cones. Yep. And even then, like, most of that space they don't really use. So, like, if you hit an iHub with 100 people, they don't care. They're not going to max form for it. They're just going to wait for you to hit their Fortizar, where they have a much better defensive advantage. Yeah. Um, but so 
like if you guys don't have uh, strategic dramas, like do you guys like focus on more like roaming kind of stuff, um, like hunting and so on, or is it all? Uh, are you guys focused on like growing and like defending your space at the moment? Are you guys so busy with that? I really like objective fights, um, just for the reason of having something on the line makes it more likely that the enemy is going to form like an actual fleet. And I really enjoy the small scale, like organized fleet setups. So if I want to take my, you know, 12 sacrileges and whatever support, I'll try and find an iHub or I'll try and find a small structure against a group that can form something that is probably fightable and hit that as opposed to roaming. I'll nano roam on occasion, but in general, that's that's what I'm really gunning for. It's what I want to do. Uh, but is there, is there a reason? Um, do you think like roaming is a little bit of a little dead right now? It goes back to what I was saying about how subcap is borked and both in terms of density and the ships people use. Like, I'll run Ishtars and I'll stick a stab on them and I'll warp off as soon as you empty system if I'm subcap ratting. Because the way subcap ratting is set up, people don't have an incentive to actually defend the space. It's easier to dock up, it's more efficient to dock up. So, unless you're either popping out of a wormhole or you're filamenting, which means your ships probably aren't coming home, or you're doing some kind of Theraboy stuff, like it's really hard to catch people and force them into a fight if you're just roaming around. So I prefer the better odds of getting that fight over an objective. Uh, uh, you know what? Like one of the interesting things that was actually earlier on the CCP stream too, and that came up before. And I know not for a fact, but I, I'm guessing CCP is looking into this is uh, an ESS rework, right? So all the ESS, like, at the moment, what do they do? Like 10%? Like, they increase 10% or something? Um, yeah, so something they, like this, right? they take 20% of your ratting tick and store it in the ESS. And then in terms of ISK, it'll pay out 25%. So you get a 5% bonus in raw ISK. And then on top of that, for every, I don't know, it's not a thousand, ten thousand, for some amount of isk killed in rats, you get LP, and the LP gain is regardless yeah, of whether the ESS is shared or stolen. I am, um, yeah, exactly. So you can have LP, or you get those tags, right? So if it's shared, people get LP, I believe. Is that correct? No. So you get the LP regardless; it's automatic. Um, whether you get the it's, so when it takes that twenty percent isk and it stores it, and people can steal that, or if it gets shared, then it becomes twenty five percent as opposed to twenty. So everybody gets a five percent bonus on their ratting tick, essentially, yeah, when it's but, shared out. So what I don't understand about ESS is like why did they make it so low? Right, there's not that much of an incentive to put them out, and then if they lose them, they don't care too much. Um, so like a rework for ESS could actually revive roaming to a degree, 
like if it's really worth putting them out and it's really worth like stealing and therefore also worth uh, defending them then you know i believe um you could have more of an incentive for roaming gangs especially you know, with the filaments people could actually make money with that kind of stuff right yeah well and one of the nice things about it is at that point you're making some solve more valuable than other solve right because in a minus like 0.1 system there's not that many people you can realistically shove in there with an ESS that are actually making decent money. But in a 0.9 system, where we shove in four times as many people, suddenly that system's super valuable because not only do we get kind of more people in the system, but we can get the ESS in there, it's easy to defend, and everybody's making a lot of money off of it. Whereas right now, like, the difference between different true sec is, especially for a small group, super minimal. Like you just you don't care. Yeah. But then also that's another thing. People about like we talked about a little bit of, uh, about citadels before. Uh, the damage cap. Now, what about that? Also, like now from an ESS perspective, because at the moment ESS don't have a damage cap, so you could go in and then kill it so fast that the defenders don't even have the chance to show up. Should there maybe um, be a damage cap of sorts, or maybe the you have to steal it or share it, and then it becomes vulnerable and can be killed, or should it not be killed at all, and it's just about the stealing part? Uh, and then what about damage cap in general? Right? I know there's not a, a lot of fans of damage cap around anymore. What do you guys I, think? I don't think a damage cap is the way to kind of incentivize this kind of thing. Because I think you can basically just smack a decent amount of health on it. And you can kind of reward both attitudes, both the types that will just slowly burn it down because they want to fight, as well as those who just want to zip in, smash and grab, and get the hell out of it. Like, I think a damage cap is just a way to basically pigeonhole it into one side. And it will typically put way too much of a bonus or a uh, incentive on the defenders to basically just form up way more stuff than the attackers are going to be able to fight and we just have a continuous situation that we currently have where people are just inclined to drop caps on roaming gangs or just completely outform them and just blob them and run them over and at that point it's not really fun for anyone yeah you might be right and what about damage cap on citadels though like um any thoughts on that or is that the same? Like, did you just say it for both ESS and? Uh, that was mostly focused to ESS. Um, I have never really been so much of a fan of damage caps on citadels because I do think it it just it to me it feels like a cancerous gameplay. It rewards too much cancerous gameplays that aren't actually focused on fighting. Um, you can do stuff like just super hard kiting doctrines, or you can bat phone multiple peoples, and you can just have one fleet of 20 dudes dedicated towards pausing a timer and then it's basically on the defenders to basically put so much more effort into actually fending off the attack at that point but at the same time like someone just said in in chat you could bring so much dps 
that people don't have the time to react. Or for example, on a big fight, like let's say a big fight like X forty seven on a set, like on a on a Keepstar fight, Titans versus Titans, like that Keepstar would die so fast that the defensive um, advantage would be gone, potentially gone, uh, be gone uh, too fast. And therefore, there's a fairly high chance that last timer doesn't see any action because there is no damage camp, right? So the risk is too high and nobody feels anything to defend it because, like, you know, what if that thing just gets, like, doomsdayed, for example, right? You could just, like, lance yeah. it to death, probably. So, I mean, if the attacking fleet just opens with a volley DDs, you've basically potentially handed the defenders to win because they're going to pop a number of your titans before you can even begin to counter the titan kills. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a problem in that sense because if you're at the point where you've where two sides have dropped 150 to 200 titans, the keep star is no longer relevant in that sense. It's going to boil down to someone needs to be able to kill that many more titans than the other side because that's going to determine the war, and that's more or less where a keep star level engagement is going to be factors in is but during the- a full on block war. Yeah, I I'd say the issue if there is one is more so at the scale i'm used to at this point where like if a block decided that they really didn't like where we were and they could just put 200 dreads on our staging fort and it's dead within three minutes then that's not really something we can realistically defend and for them it doesn't matter even if they lose 100 of those dreads and whatever mess comes after that We've just lost our staging fort. We're asset safety. We're out of commission for at least two weeks. And like, if they do that a few times, we're going to say, oh, this sucks. We don't want to be here anymore because that's not fun. Like, We need somewhere to put our stuff from. And we're in Savno for a reason. It's because we don't want to live out of a station. Otherwise, we'd be an NPC nullsec or lowsec. So what I'm always tr- uh, trying to do is find the middle ground. So what about... You remove assets, uh, asset safety is another thing. <laughs> you remove, Ooh, don't get me started. <laughs> you remove damage cap beside the last timer. So let's say like all timers are completely like damage cap is no issue, but the last timer is going to have like, it's going to have the, the damage cap. Cause I believe I disagree a hundred percent to what you just said about the, or what Canon said about, uh, the keepster doesn't matter. It does matter a lot. Like in X forty seven, for example, I don't believe Panther would have fielded uh, their Titans and Supers in that fight at all if there was no damage cap, because they can count on be- that keepster being alive for a certain amount of time. If you kill that keepster while they are uh, still trying to de-aggress, for example, they lose everything, like everything, potentially. And they already lost the first fight. You're like it's in it's in structure, so you already lost the armor timer. So what makes you think now uh, the structure timer is going to be much better, right? So um, I I totally disagree, and that that keeps on if it's alive or not. It plays a big role. Uh, so the defender always have that choice of saying, okay, we have five minutes to left, ever disagree, uh, and then dock up, lock off, or. Uh, just degress, jump out, or whatever. You still have tether for like that amount of time, and you know it for sure, right? So, um, and what was the other point I wanted to make? Um, 
asset safety. <laughs> we should we should be talking about asset safety too. Um, so you seem to have like a, 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 an opinion about asset safety. So what's your take on it? Uh, having been in and around a lot of small groups, I usually find myself arguing with a lot of the people around me because they're pretty against asset safety. And I think that get like, honestly, for the most part, it's fine. I think the fact that CCP's made it so that abandoned structures drop stuff is about the farthest I'd be willing to go for it because it's, it's designed to be a replacement for the way stations worked, right? And so even though sometimes you got locked out of a station, you always had at least like 70 to 80% of the value of those assets available to you because you could fire sell it and somebody would buy it, especially if it was cheap enough. And asset safety is really just designed to be the same thing for citadels in a world where you can't just fire sale stuff in whatever empty space that citadel used to be in. So to that point, for people actually like coming back to the game after a certain period of time, it's pretty much required. And CCP is not going to change it from that sense, no matter what you tell them. The other thing is that if you made it so that citadels dropped like even half of what was in them, you would see like large groups just watching small groups within their kind of area of influence, waiting six months and blowing up their staging fortisar. It might not be super risk efficient, but as long as a bunch of stuff drops, everybody's going to have a lot of fun looting the field, and then somebody's staging for it cuts night. One of the big reasons that small groups kind of can do what they do right now is because they can make it so that the level of effort you need to invest into killing their staging citadels is high enough that unless you really hate them or they're doing some really annoying stuff to you, you're not really incentivized to go all out and just crush them and blow up their staging fort. Like, you know, Brotherhood of Spacers, Boss, like the guys up there in NPC Null and Venal, they have some Fortizars, but Pan and Panfam doesn't really feel an intense urge to spend the level of effort needed to kill them because they're not pissing them off to such a great extent. Yeah, they go and they fight Panfam on occasion. But that lets them kind of exist in that space. And if you made it so that like even like 20 billion dropped out of the average staging Fortisar that exploded, you'd see them dying all the time because people want to have a nice little fun with loot pinatas. And then we'd be living in stations, which again, not fun. And on top of that, at least for any of the groups that I know, it's very rare that you'll see people store things in the structures that we want to see dead, right? We complain about the like constant like flow of roach motels and citadels that are all over the universe that like are barely maintained or are super annoying to kill. Most of those don't have anything in them. Like at least 80% of the citadels that are in our constellation don't have stuff in them. It's like the few citadels we use for Indy, the Fortizar, and maybe one or two Astros, and that's it. Because you could just stick everything in your Fortizar. There's no reason to put it anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, Kainun, you got any thoughts on asset safety? Any uh, 
uh, strong think, opinions? I've never really had terribly strong opinions on, on asset safety. Um, I think we're going in a decent direction in the sense that we're going to be able to create loop pinatas out of abandoned structures. I think that's going to help the structure spam the game affair. Um, but asset safety itself, I've never really had as much of an issue with other with as other people have. You know, structure spam is always like one of the things I never understood. Like, why did they like why didn't they see that coming? You know, why didn't they like? It's similar to the Titan thing, where where they said like, I don't even know, two thousand five or whenever, like the first Titan concept was like made. They said like, oh, there's always going to be just like a few of those, right? Now we've got a thousand Titans uh, here and there, and. Uh, you could already see that before Citadels. Citadels like made that even, you know, sp sp sped that up even even more. Um, but yeah, Citadels—they should have known what players are going to do with Citadels, right? Especially at the price point of like Astrohuses and 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 stuff like this. They're not expensive at all. Like, why didn't they limit like the amount of? certain types uh, or sizes of uh, citadels per system like they could have easily done that at the beginning and i think maybe the the whole citadel thing was so rushed that they didn't like put in all their thoughts there i don't know what do you guys think like mm. should it be limited the price of citadels could easily be doubled like maybe scale it down on some of the higher end ones. Like I don't know if you want a Fortisar costing almost twenty bill just for the hull, but like they used a Raikaru at six hundred mil or an Astra at eight hundred is like I've got fleet ships that are twice as expensive as that. Like, what are you doing? Yep. And I I don't think the cost is so much of a problem in and of itself. I mean, if we if, if Citadel costs were basically doubled overnight. I think it would greatly disproportionately affect smaller entities like ours, Murray. Because, I mean, just parking back to what Philly said not too long ago and shut it boils down to Malkanis' law. Like, any kind of change like that is going to far more disproportionately affect small groups than it will large. I think a much more effective way to deal with the Citadel spam is to have implemented limits at the beginning for how many of each size can go into a system. Interesting. I actually wouldn't have said that, mostly because I'm used to not placing that many citadels to begin with. Um, so, like, when I think of like what citadels I need as a small alliance, I cap out at like one large for you know, like one Asbel, and then some Astras, and maybe some Athenors, and that's about it. So, like, I've never seen citadels as something that was a big cost interesting that you feel that way though yeah i do agree though i think cost is always just only going to be so uh, going to do so much right like even oh, double, for sure even double the cost for for design like at the beginning they used to cost like 20 bill right if you dig back and people still anchor them and stuff it's it's not the cost really uh, I mean, look at look at one uh, DQ. There's like uh, how many faction forts there? I don't even know, right? So, um, like, it's it's not really the the cost uh, technically that's gonna create any incentive. I think. Um, 
but I just I just believe also for roaming gangs. Um, I don't want to go into my onto my typical like citadel rant because like <laughs> I think every time it comes up, citadels are a major issue, and it should be coming up every time. But especially for smaller roaming gangs and stuff, like you jump into a system and there's like fifty different citadels. Like, what do you walk to? Like, there's no opportunity for you whatsoever. If you walk to the Keepstar, you're getting DD'd or PDS'd. Um, and then there's like fifty Athanors. Like, should there be fifty Athanors, right? Should there maybe just be like maybe they should limit it by just type and size, right? Say, okay, you can have so and so many XL structures per system, so and so many large, and so and so on, and then so and so many engineering, and so and so many like combat citadels, and so on. So you have like certain slots per system that you can fill up. Or someone like I think there was a uh, a um, uh, suggestion before is like that you have um, a bandwidth per system, like how many you can. But I'm not I'm not sure if I'm a big fan of that. But I'm sure it should be limited to degree. The a bandwidth system actually kind of sounds interesting. The problem with any kind of limitations implied it or uh, applied at this stage though is like there are so many entities that have massive amounts of citadel sprawls even just cross entities and whatnot that it would be really difficult to roll out any of those kind of changes in a equitable or fair way because how are you going to determine which entity has to pull up what structures or whose structures necessarily should get pulled up in the case of what? like a, a contested reduction as far as how many structures can be in a system um well i don't think that would be so hard i think you would just say um the oldest structures like the ones that got anchored first will stay and keep and and take the slot or the bandwidth whatever system you go for i think the slot system would be a little bit more um uh would give you a little bit more overview of what's actually happening like how much bandwidth does it keeps to take and all that stuff you know you know i don't know um so um i think you just you just go and say hey if that system let's say if my keepster is older than your keepster and there's only one keepster allowed per system then yours is gonna unanchor in 10 days or go into abandon mode that's what it should do right now we've got the abandon mode so after 10 days did i say two days i mean 10 days uh your keepster will go into abandon mode and then i can go kill it or someone else um, can go kill it. Um, and if someone wants to come and attack stuff and be aggressive, for example, you uh, you have a keepster and you wanna, uh, I wanna kill it, I would most likely come and put a fort down, and uh, you know, or it, I don't have to, but that's usually what happens is like someone puts a fort down. But that fourth slot might already be taken. But then I've got 10 days to make it happen. I can uh, either 10 days to go kill the Keepster with the power of that fort to stage from, or I kill your fort and empty that slot. So mine is now in that fort slot, right? So you can... Uh, um, so my, my fort can stay up for longer if I need longer to kill whatever I want. So I think it's uh, that would be probably a, a good a way to do it and i don't think people are too uh too much against uh, a change 
right? If it's for the, if, it, if it's f like a, a good approach, if you hit the sweet spot and, you know, you, you implement the right changes, people are go not going to complain that they have to change some citadels and move them around or take them down and all that stuff. It's not, it's not going to be the end of the world, right? If we, at the end, end up with a good system for the future, right? Then I think, even if it's hard, it's not easy to hit the right spot, but it's possible, I think. It could very well be, but uh, I would almost guarantee a system like that would just be a very dramatic and painful transition for a lot of people, and I think there would, there would most likely be a decent amount of backlash from a lot of different groups about it. There'd be a lot of stuff you'd have to do in the back end to make sure that goes right. Because, I mean, any structure that's getting unanchored, like if you have two Satias in a system and you say you're only going to allow one, whichever Satia is unanchoring has what, like 80 billion on it in rigs? So you got to make sure that the rigs are basically what? un. or rippable essentially. Like you can take the rigs out and go and when you put that Satio somewhere else you have the rigs or you can sell them because otherwise you're just making people lose 80 bill for the fun of it so that's it's a problem but it's a solvable problem too so you can either go and say hey we are aware like a lot of people invested a lot of stuff in rigs and stuff this is going to be a unique thing all citadels that were anchored before this day like today if i announce these changes right um would be able to get their rigs, uh, rigs back. You could unfit rigs. You could give them that option, right? So people can do that. Or you just go and say, hey, this change is going to come in half a year. So people can actually make use of that citadel for half a year. And then they know, okay, now it's like end of its lifetime. And, uh, you know, they can get that profit out of it still. Half a year, I think at that point... A citadel should have, like, all the rigs should have paid out for them, you know? I mean, there's ways, that's all I'm saying, right? I'm not saying it's like everything is, like, easy-peasy, or, like, everything's gonna be perfect and nobody's gonna uh, complain. There's always gonna be people complaining, no matter what you do. But uh, I truly believe citadels need to be limited in an A way. Uh, I have a better idea. Rather than having hard limits, why not have penalties like having duplicates, duplicate mods? One Satio, one dollar, two Satio is three dollar. Is he talking like something like industry indexes or? I think like he's more referring to like an actual tax applied to like the number of the number of uh, structures that you have in the system. That could actually be really interesting. So rather than hard limiting, he wants to create an incentive to have less citadels in system. Yeah, that could actually potentially be interesting as far as how that could be rolled. Because at that point, that also intensely discourages, discourages overdeveloping a system in that respect. I mean, to some extent, that already exists in the system indexes. I am not deeply involved in industry, so I don't know how oppressive index fees get at kind of the upper end of what you can make them. But in theory, right, if you stick if you stuck all your manufacturing satios in one system, the manufacturing index there is gonna be terrible. And so you're eating at least like a six or seven percent 
profit margin loss or something like that. Yeah, he's kind of proposing something on top of that, and I would expect that he's kind of imagining it for all citadels in general. Like if you drop one Astro House, you have to pay a certain amount per month, say 20 mil. You drop a second one, suddenly that's 100. You drop a third one, suddenly it's a bill. And basically just a scaling cost per structure that you have in a system. Simple farmers on Suicide Watch. But now imagine... A lot of entities in Suicide Watch. But now imagine you guys have 20... Athanos or Astrosus, it doesn't matter what it is, in one system, and then I come in, I've got way more ace than you, and I just anchor another 20. And then you have to pay more? Or is it just going to be per age? Like, the first one is, stays on that cost. Right, you could, like, oh, I guess you could do that. Yeah, that I'd say it would probably go by your anchoring time thing, or time of anchoring, rather, that you mentioned before. Yeah. No, probably that probably would be a good approach to it. Yeah, I kind of like it. But at the same time, it's the same thing though. People that already invested, let's say like goons and one Q are super invested in their structures and stuff like this. They have I don't even know how many satios are there. Are there two? Maybe three? I don't know. But yeah, that kind of system would need to be an ongoing thing to actually incentivize the ripping up of structures. Because otherwise, if it's just applied to the actual anchoring, I mean, that's a one-time fee. The people who are already entrenched, they come out like bandits, as opposed to the people who actually want to take regions. They suddenly have to pay a crap ton more in order to take it. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I think that the thing that everyone agrees on, though, they have to be limited in some way, or the, the, the incentive needs to be created for people to slim down per system, right? Yeah. And so far, CCP is pretty much... I mean, they went for the low-hanging fruit of what was essentially Roach Motels, where they're low-power, nobody cares. And that's a good first step, but yeah, we definitely need a little bit more. Yeah, I agree. A little bit more impactful changes, right? All right, guys. Yeah, uh, Murray, what else like is on your list, by the way? For CSM, since you're running, like what when it is comes it? to when it comes to CSM stuff, I've generally been pretty mum on specific ideas because kind of like what you said before, right? Like if I'm going in with like my one or two things, I just really want to make happen. Like that's not a guarantee, and that's not really what they're at, like what they want me there for. The reason that I started running was that having talked with some people who are on the CSM this past year and having talked with some people at CCP, it was very clear that they weren't getting feedback from small and medium-sized groups about the changes they were doing. So whether it was, like I said before, with like the six-hour time window on structures versus four hours, resist changes, fax changes, all of those things, like, they know how it's going to affect the big blocks because eight of them are from the big box. But if you ask them what that resist change looks like for a small group that's fighting with 20 to 30 guy characters in a fleet, they might have some secondhand sources, but that's not where the majority of their information and expertise is. And the CSM needs somebody who has that knowledge. I don't care if it's me or it's Darius Caliente or it's uh, the guy from Fwedit who's running, or one of the low-sec guys, right? Like, I don't care which one of us it is. 
as long as one of us gets on there so that somebody has that experience and that firsthand knowledge, and more importantly, has the network of people that they talk to in those other small groups that they can reach out to whenever changes occur and say, hey, how do you feel about this, right? Because my network of people that I talk to probably looks very different from your even your network, right? Because my primary contacts are Roque Capel, Cone, Unspoken, Dogfort, like people in a trigger happy friend, um, toilet paper. Like I talk to all these groups that are on the much smaller scale and that's where I get most of my interaction. So that's just where my knowledge is kind of naturally. And that's why I'm running because apparently that knowledge is needed. Yeah. I mean, they have Exuki on there and he does like wormhole sized fleets, right? Or he did like, no, he's an in it. Um, yeah. So he knows how it works in Walmart, but, but that's another different kind of thing, right? And I agree. Uh, like mid-sized uh, null-sec alliances, it's hard to get an, a candidate on there, right? Because it's hard to get a following behind someone who's just uh, NFC for a small, smaller group. Because the big blocks, they're very efficient with their votes. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's like I said, I'm just hoping we get somebody on there. Yeah. I mean, Willy is saying they were given the feedback you think they weren't given. And I, I, I believe, I believe the CS, there's like, even large scale, let's say, uh, like a Willy or like some other FC, even though, do we have another FC on at the moment? I don't... I don't even know, to be quite honest. But um, they had like a phase where they were in a smaller group too, right? Or in a smaller alliance, most likely. I mean, not always. But they might not know everything at the current, but they always have a, a little bit of an idea. And most people that run for CSM, I would also say um, at least try their best to represent like all aspects. But yeah, you're right it would be better to have someone there whose focus is on that. And I, I hope one of you guys is getting on. If, if it's uh, Phantomite, you, uh, Stitch, or uh, Darius, or uh, someone from like a smaller group, uh, that would be, uh, you know, would be quite nice. Yeah. And it's, yeah. again, it's a lot of it is just like, you want people from those different areas because I'm not going to be the expert on faction warfare. Like, I didn't do it. I skipped straight to Nullsec. But we need somebody there who can have some of that knowledge in a more first-hand way where even if they don't have the exact answers, they have a large set of people they can go to immediately. Yeah, so... That's a good point, actually, because the first-hand knowledge, right? So a lot of times what the CSM, I think that's the thing what I was bringing up earlier, too. They, like, everyone's pushing this narrative as if the CSM comes up uh, to CCP and says, oh, like, this is a great idea, and then pushes for, the, for, the, for this idea to, like, get realized into the game, right? That's not how this works. That's game design. You're not the game designer, you're the CSM. So what the CSM should be doing is enabling CCP to make the right decisions in the first place, right? So 
like yes them Veli says we do that yeah you come up but that's not the you know that's not how you usually get stuff done and uh, the, the most important part in my opinion is for the CSM that if CCP comes up with something and they say hey what do you think you need to be able to answer that in a um in an educated um you know in first hand with first hand knowledge so you need to be confident in what you say in there right and then if suddenly there's a change that impacts small groups and then Willy has to answer it he might be right he might be right but he might be wrong too like what's the chances right you'd rather have a small scale guy answering that question than a, a block leadership guy right and uh yeah so I think that's a that's one important part of the CSM is being able to answer that question right away with confidence, with good knowledge. Yeah. I one of the one of the interesting things to me was after the resist nerf, a lot of people kinda agreeing with like the it's too hard for stuff to die because anywhere in my network of people, we never felt that, that was the case. And for the most part, what it ended up doing was taking the scale of fights that we could theoretically take and cutting it down by a proportionate amount of DPS that we just couldn't deal with anymore, right? Because we either couldn't bring enough reps or we couldn't deal with that level of alpha. And like, to me, the best fights that I've ever been in in this game were fights where both sides had enough logi to theoretically tank each other. And the things that we would do on each side of that fight in order to win were like some of the like highest level fights I've been in where it's about target swapping, faking out and baiting the enemy into thinking we're going for one target instead of another, doing a cavalry approach with missiles to try and stack damage. Uh, trying to keep your Logi just outside of range of their DPS so that they can't do this or that, e-warring their drone bunny so they have to have all their pilots manually assign the drones to targets so target swapping doesn't happen as fast. It's those little things that make the fights really interesting to me. It's like, I if I'm just going to be a deep, it's just going to be a DPS race fight, like, yeah, it's fun, some ships exploded, but that's not what I'm there for. And so to me, the resist change was like, it didn't change that in terms of like, ah, like we just like, we're sitting there and we both couldn't break like their like fleets and then we just went home. Like to me, the most interesting part was the little things you do in the small fights to break Logi when the other side thinks they can tank. Yeah. I mean, we had that just the other day with a super small gang, like a ten-man gang, and they had like a guardian and a a guardian and a uh, and an Algoro, and we couldn't break it with the DPS we had. Just technically not possible. And then we just de-aggressed because they couldn't break us either. <laughs> and then we warped uh, off into a bubble in the next system, and then we were able to split them up with an MGD and then kill the Algoro and then kill some other stuff and they had to whoop out because they couldn't tank us but we could tank them and uh, I agree yeah, that's that's the kind of shit you know that makes EVE interesting especially because like and this is 
uh, was even more so the case when I was in Unspoken. But we were fighting Forsaken Empire and Trigger Happy in most of our fights. And all three of those groups are pretty high in terms of pilot competency. So at no point in like preparing to fight each other would we show up if we knew we didn't have enough Laji to tank. And because all three groups had pretty high-level FCs and knowledgeable line members, the odds that nobody was going to make a grievous miscalculation and show up with like way too little Laji were pretty low. If you saw them on dock with what they had, you knew mostly whether you'd be able to tank or not. And so like it was going to be regardless in those small scale fights that like we were going to show up with enough logic to tank each other because we know what they have, roughly what it does, what they're in. And so all of those fights were about the little tricks that we brought, whether it was E-War or Newts or Booshing, all of those little things. Yep. Um, maybe one, we are well over one and a half hours, but uh, maybe one last question. Uh, since we talked about CSM uh, members, like, for example, Willi was here, uh, what do you think have like that CSM members or could have where 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 do you think CSM members could have done a better job or in other words where would you do a better job than uh, you know most uh, other CSM guys? Maybe communication or like or do you like do you think like? The CSM did a horrible job, or did you, do you think the CSM guys that are currently on um, are, are actually doing a decent job, and they just lack that one bit of knowledge? In some I areas? mean, I think that so for the two candidates, right, that weren't part of a large null block, right, Exuki and Olmeca, they did what they wanted to do just from different areas, right? Like, there was a grievous lack of wormhole knowledge, and that's what Exuki came in to deal with. That's why he was there. And so he focused on that and was probably very helpful. I don't really know what goes on. The last notes for the CSM Summit were, like, completely useless in terms of telling who was doing what at the CSM Summit. But, like, he probably went and did his job, and Olmeca managed to get one of the quote-unquote, quote but, like, Surgical Strike was just whalers like goodness right 15 percent on torps caps are far worse resist nerfs this that and the other like that was just all there for whaling so he wanted to advocate for a more riskier game style in terms of that and he definitely got it um whether that was what the game needed is probably a question you could debate but I, they both did what they wanted to i think yeah, I'm not sure if that was all him, but, you know, I guess we'll never know. I would be, I'd be very surprised if it was all him. Um, I know one of the things that I would really like to see a lot of the CSM reps do a little bit more is actually trying to meaningfully communicate, like, what being on the CSM actually means. Like, what the limit of their powers, so to speak, really is, so that more people understood kind of what they can actually do. Because I think that would actually help people that are potentially voting actually vote for candidates that are going to be able to bring those perspectives and whatnot more effectively to CCP. 
Because right now you have a lot of people who think that, oh, they can just propose game changes or they can actually propose policies or do they do, wait, do they do that? Or do they review things that are pitched by CCP and things of that nature? And so there's a lot of confusion as far as just what their actual scope of power really is. And I think that's something that it would behoove them to actually uh, kind of focus in on. Yeah. Um, guys, I think this is probably a good point to uh, to call it. Uh, if anyone on stream might, like, if you guys have good questions, feel free to ask them. Put them in. Uh, perfect would be if, if you highlight them, because, like, I can't read every little line, because I get distracted, and then I lose my train of thought like I did earlier. <laughs> it's like, if I get distracted, I'm like, oh, shit, like, you know, the podcasting stuff, I'm doing this, like, basically on my own so it's a it's a skill i'm trying to learn still so if you have any good question put them in other than that i would already say uh thanks for coming on guys uh it was a pleasure talking to you guys and uh good luck on your campaign murray thank you and uh, good luck in general right with the with the groups i hope you guys grow to uh to the size you want and uh, you guys have good fights and all that stuff. Likewise, uh, thanks for having us. All right, there's one question here. Does Murray feel that that his stint on the CSM, if he did make it in, would drain him out of Eve? That's actually a good question. It'd so. be very hard to make me drained out by talking about Eve some more. Murray loves talking about spaceships. It's a good time. Yeah, you know what? I have, there are a couple people I can vouch for. I always have two or three people in my Discord that just every, that theory crafting bar is all the way to the right for a reason. Um, I do a lot of it, and I throw people fits all day long. But, so what I think, so the reason why Jared is asking that is obviously because a lot of uh, CSM member in the past burned out or quit the game right after and stuff and I think it has not, not necessarily to do with the workload or with the amount of like people they have to talk to and all that stuff I think it's probably gonna be a mix of that and them seeing uh, or not seeing a future for the game because of the insights they gain right so maybe they go in and they're disappointed by what they see. That is my guess. So they, they make the decision of saying, okay, no. Like, I can't put more energy in here. But there's only one way to find out, right? You can, yeah, you can tell us. If you get elected, you can come back and then tell us. <laughs> if, if that's Start looking case. for a new MMO because this one will be dead in a year. Ah. Something like that. <laughs> Uh, I mean, Aerith did this one tweet. If you, I'm not sure if you guys followed this, but he tweeted out like, "If anyone is ever gonna ask me in the future when I knew uh, it was the end, that day was today." Uh, he tweeted that kind of like in the, along the lines. He tweeted that out. It was like, "Oof!" And then suddenly, you know, actually from then on, that's not too long ago. From then on, it actually went upwards, right? <laughs> it's like. <laughs> It's kind of weird. So maybe everything is just wrong. Since Blackout, the numbers have been looking good. 
Yeah, I think that was in January when he said that. But yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, he's a little dramatic, but hey. And maybe he was right at the time. But yeah, whatever. Um, oh, there's another question. Do you believe that tweaking stats is a better balancing tool than changing costs of production slash rarity of production ingredients in a game based around a free market economy? That's too complex. I don't think that's... Are you guys the, the yeah, guests for... Yeah, let me just Let me just write a thesis here real quick. <laughs> dive into some fits to yeah. explain that one. Jared, uh, I hope you're not I would like to complain that uh, goons feeding too many sacrileges or people buying armor hacks has made the cost of faction thermal hardeners go up by like a factor of 10. And I hate all of you. They didn't feed that many sacrileges lately, I think. It, like it's yeah. every every big fight is just dread on dread violence at the moment. Oh, wait, which is kind of fun. don't actually use the armor hardeners, although they leave them in cargo, which is even more confusing. But well, um, for refit purposes. Yeah. Moral of the story is you should all stop buying armor hacks because I like armor hacks, and you're making the modules expensive. Yeah, and while you're busy not buying stuff, also don't buy kickies, right? Yeah, Pando can't can't lose his kiki supply. You know what? Kiki prices went down. I'm pretty happy about that. And I always I imagine so. You love pat himself in the back. I didn't nuke the market this week. All right. I f I fed like 13 bill worth of kikis the other day, and I almost got keyboard or not keyboard pipe bombed twice, but I got away with it. And you know, it worked out all right. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the day. But yeah. Whatever. It's, it's inevitable. It will happen at some point or another. It happens to the best yeah. of us. Well, I've been I've I've been lucky for a while right? with Stukas and with Kikis. I've I've not gotten keyboards. But my money's yeah. on an army of mango getting you. I I was talking to full when I had Fulcrum on the second time not too long ago. He was actually saying like that's his goal right? to chemo me. <laughs> he'll, he'll get you eventually. Yeah, he he'll, he'll try at least. And he might, he might just get me. But I might just spot it and get him. We will see. All right, Jared, one more question. Okay, last one. Last one. We are super close to two hours, actually. If you're quick. When is Planetside 2 being incorporated into Eve? Good game, though. You should all come play Planetside with me. Oh, dear. You know, right, with that. I need to head out, guys. Thank you very much for having me on, Pando. Yo, thanks for coming on. Um, and uh, yeah, good luck. Thanks Thank for having so. us, Pando. And for the guys on stream, thanks for the subs and hanging out and stuff. Um, and I would say, um, see you on the next one.